kind words uh, about the lessons. I appreciate your patience, especially today. Uh, as the voice still is a little hoarse, uh, but I uh, hope that it will be better by Wednesday night. hope you can be back with us then and uh, certainly by next Sunday. So today, this afternoon, we're going to talk about a lesson. As I said, if you've got a bulletin in front of you, uh, we missed a word in the bulletin, but it's supposed to be five characteristics of bad Bible study. This is coming out of an article that I read a while back. Um, we often suggest to you the Focus Press magazine out of uh, the Nashville area. Our brother Brad Harrib, Dr. Brad Harrib, puts that together along with a lot of other writers. One of the main writers that works with that publication and all that they do is Jack Wilkie. And a lot of you are familiar with Jack because we studied his book recently on Wednesday night. Um, this, the book that we did about the church uh, was very encouraging. And let me go one step further and recommend to you the uh, podcast. If you like to listen to podcasts, Charles and I kick this one around a lot because we both listen to it and usually we'll try to uh, discuss at least a couple of things we heard. But off of the Focus Press brand, I guess, so to speak, they have a podcast that's called the Think Deeper, Think Deeper podcast. And you can find it on the Internet, on Facebook, on most uh, social media platforms or podcast platforms, uh, and they do a lot of discussion. Uh, there's about three guys that are on there typically, and they kind of go into some deeper issues that uh, a lot of times people don't want to talk about or don't even think about, things like uh, even politics. They had some lessons around COVID and our worship time around COVID uh, and things like modesty, uh, all kinds of ideas, the, the things in our news about abortion, transgenderism, what we as Christians should be thinking about regarding those things. And they'll tell you there are a bunch of young guys that are typically on here, but they'll give you their thoughts, and you can kind of take it and mull it over. Uh, but Charles and I, like I said, usually listen to it separately and then kind of come back together and talk about it a little bit because it's very thought-provoking at, at the least, very encouraging sometimes to think about those things. And so our lesson this afternoon is going to come from an article uh, that was put out by Focus Press that deals with this idea of Bible study. Now, it's no secret that many people in our world today don't really care about the Bible, uh, but the problem is, is that some people in the church don't even really care about how to study the Bible properly. People don't know Bible basics in the way that they used to. Now, this article was first published in 2021 uh, in May, and it was a whole article about Bible study and some of those things, and so... Um, you know, it was very encouraging. If you want, like a copy of that, I usually have those in my office because the church here gets them, and then I kind of collect them and keep them if you'd like to, to follow up with anything that we talk about this afternoon. Uh, but, you know, our, our motivation should not be just to tell people to just open your Bible and start studying because we can find ourselves in a lot of trouble. It is obviously good to open the Bible. I do believe that a person can open their Bible and start reading and find out what God wants them to know but it's also true uh, that many people can go and just open the Bible and start pulling things and a verse here and a verse there and find a lot of dangerous theology and dangerous thoughts. If we're going to do it, then we want to do it right. Because even in the small mi minority who do know the Bible somewhat and spend time in it these days, a significant segment of people, of those people, have all kinds of wrong ideas due to poor study habits. We need to know how to study the right way, but we also need to know how not to study God's Word. Now, this list is not exhaustive, uh, but hopefully it will give you an idea of a few things that you can keep in mind. Number one, bad Bible study ignores context. Ignores context. One of my favorite examples that my father-in-law always gives, of course, 
is that did you know that the Bible says there is no God? The Bible says there is no God. Of course, that's in Psalm 14 and verse number 1. But what the verse actually says is that the fool says that there is no God. And that's kind of a joking way, facetious way, to say that, yes, the Bible says there is no God, but you've got to know the context. And so bad Bible study ignores context. The problem, somewhat, is that the Bible is divided up easily into verses, and that helps us study sometimes, but we can end up treating verses like any other written text. Imagine, if you would, taking letters from your spouse, say, you know, I know some of you remember back to a time when boyfriends and girlfriends used exchange notes in school and letters back and forth, right? Now these kids don't know anything but their thumbs and those phones. But, you know, there's a time when we wrote letters and love notes to each other. Imagine taking one of those and just pulling out a sentence here or there. It wouldn't make sense. You might say something that, that your spouse didn't even mean. But if you were to take a, a letter from your spouse and divide it up line by line, almost make it verse by verse, and then pull out certain verses and make new paragraphs, well, yeah, it might be factually true to say he or she wrote those words, but she didn't write them or he didn't write them in that order, and it may not mean the way they meant for them to come across when they're pulled apart and then put back together in a different way. Now, we realize that'd be absurd to do that with letters from a spouse, yet it's the primary way if not, it's the primary way many, if not most people, study the Bible. The Bible was not written as a series of disconnected verses to be strung together as we choose. In fact, we talked about Paul's prison epistles recently. And if you go through Paul's epistles, many of them, outside of Romans and the Corinthian letters, are fairly small. And I would challenge you, take those and read them in one sitting. Because they were meant to be taken by the congregation and read as a scroll for everyone, you wouldn't open what Paul sent you and say, well, we only have time today for the first two paragraphs, and then we're going to move on. No, you would want to read it all. Every verse is placed within multiple layers of context for a reason, and it cannot be properly understood unless it is understood in the light of those contexts. Now, before you can assert the meaning of a verse... Look at the immediate context, the two or three verses that are around it. So I ask you to turn to Philippians 4, but we're all familiar with Philippians 4.13. Paul did say that he could do all things through Christ who strengthened him. But without the context, we end up defining these all things the way we want to rather than the way that Paul meant them. So take a quick scan of the area, back out a little bit. And look at the immediate context. And he was talking about enduring any situation in life with Jesus' help. You go back to verse 12 and he's talking about hunger and how to suffer need. How to be abased and how to abound. And keep in mind, he's writing from prison. You know, a lot of people in our world today make a big deal about being wrongfully convicted. And I agree, nobody wants that. No person should be in prison when they didn't actually do anything or commit the crime. But here is Paul, who is sort of, in a sense, wrongfully in prison, suffering, and yet he's writing these things about, I can do all things through Christ who, Christ who strengthened me. After the immediate context, though, here in Philippians 4, zoom out a bit further and look at the context of the section. The section can range from a couple of paragraphs to a few chapters, depending on the book. 
In Philippians chapter 4, Paul is talking about having the right mindset. Go back up to the beginning of the chapter of peace and joy. So 4.13 continues in that theme and it loses its intended power if it is made to be more broad than it was intended to be. Not broad about everything, but about peace and joy. Then, think about the context of the book. See, we keep zooming out further and further. In Philippians, Paul is speaking about the joy that results when Christians unite for the gospel. And that's a needed message for a church that was divided. Go back to chapter 4 and look at verses 2 through 3. There is a problem. Paul has to call out two sisters and point out that they're not doing what they should. So it was divided, and so this message of Christians uniting for the gospel is important. He speaks of the sacrifices that Jesus made for us, along with the sacrifices that he made of Timothy, of Epaphroditus, that they made for the gospel. And here it is, chapter 1, go to chapter 1, and verse 21 is key. For me, Paul says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. When you're living in service to Christ with the promise of being with him when you die, guess what? You can get through anything. I can do all things through Christ. When I remember that this world is not my home, for me to die is gain, to be with him is where I get to go be, then I can truly do anything through Christ who strengthens me. And that's the foundation in chapter 1 and verse 21 for chapter 4 and verse 13. Philippians 4.13 maybe the most well-known verse that's taken out of context and therefore the easiest to diagnose. But the truth is, we can stumble into the mis this mistake with virtually any verse in the entire Bible. The Bible student must engage in the work of exposing the context in order to understand a verse correctly. Number two, bad Bible study assumes it is all about me. Bad Bible study assumes everything is directly about me. The Bible was certainly written for me. It was certainly written for you. But that doesn't mean it was written to you or to me. One of the other most famous passages, of course, is Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 may say, I know the plans I have for you. But the you that God was talking to there isn't a high school graduate who's receiving a Hallmark card and $20 from somebody at church. Because that's most often when you'll see that verse used. Looking at the context, looking at the context, it tells us who the you is. And once we understand who the you is that he's talking to, we can understand what the verse was truly intended to mean. It's not talking to you or the high school student, you or the college graduate. It's talking to the children of Israel there. The other way to insert ourselves into the text to assume it's about me is to read the Bible's you when it says you individualistically. Our southern brethren, as we think about us from the south, use this language a little more effectively when we think about you versus y'all. Right, like we sometimes like to say, you versus y'all. And the King James Version actually kind of talks about this similarly when it talks about you and ye. 
I know we get caught up sometimes trying to read King James, New King James, English Standard Version. It gets maybe a little difficult, but you and ye can be a little different. The commands and promises given to you in the Bible are generally given to a people, given to you, not to a person. Yes, God wants us each to obey those commands, but they were given to all of us together when we think about uh, when we think about helping each other along the way. And yes, he has great promises in store for each of us, but those promises, but those are promises we share with all of our brothers and sisters, and we would do well to emphasize the shared nature of what we have in God. When we read ourselves into the Bible, we end up with an individualistic religion that elevates ourself and it misses the text's intending, intended meaning. You see, we have to be careful when we assume that everything is directly about me. And so as we read the Bible, we need to focus in on exactly who is being spoken to in the moment there. All right, number three, bad Bible study pits the Bible against itself. Pits the Bible against itself. I'm going to throw a few verses at you. You don't have to turn to all of them. It pits the Bible against itself. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 says, Baptism now saves you. Short and sweet. There's more to it there, but just to sum it up. Baptism now saves you. Well, Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says that we're saved by grace through faith and not works. Baptism now saves you. We're saved by grace through faith. But James 2.17 says faith without works is dead. So we're not saved by works, but faith without works is dead. Well, yeah, but Romans chapter 3 and verse 28 says we're saved by faith apart from works. Well, anybody who just opens up to each one of those passages, which I know would be very random and very hard, excuse me, to pick those out, but if a person is reading through and hits all of those, they may be left scratching their head. You see the problem here. The Bible does say all of those things. What I quoted to you or paraphrased for you was not untrue. It's in the Bible. But to engage in what, again, Jack Wilkie kind of wrote this article, he says he calls it scripture wars. To engage in scripture wars like this makes a big implication that I don't think we want to make. And that is namely that the Bible contradicts itself. If we say that faith without works is dead, but we're saved by faith apart from works, we've got problems. And I don't think we are ready to go there. And guess what? Do you know what the key is? Context. The key is proper context. Now, Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 Peter 3 are both necessary to the plan of salvation. Baptism now saves you. We're saved by grace through faith and not works. We are saved by grace through faith, which Paul emphasized to show that it is God's gift to us. We receive by trusting him rather than working for it. You see, I reckon that God could have said that we have to travel to Jerusalem. You've probably heard me say this before. I reckon that God could have said that we have to run so many miles or do so many jumping jacks. I mean, all those things seem silly, but I reckon God could have put any kind of number of works into his word if he wanted to. But instead, we receive his gift of grace by trusting him. Now, we're also saved by baptism, which Peter pointed out to emphasize the washing away of sin that sparks new life. 
Well, what does James mean by works in James 2, 17? Read James 2 and you'll see that he was discussing the kind of actions that will naturally flow from the heart of someone who has faith in God. If we have faith in God, we want to be kind. We want to please God. We're going to take certain actions. Paul did not mean works of merit done to try to earn God's favor. That's what he's talking about in Romans 3, where he says that somebody feels like they can obtain enough works to earn God's favor. Using one verse against another to score a point is shamefully disrespectful to God's word. He did not contradict himself. Our understanding of what he wants must be an understanding that does not depend on making one verse fight against another. The Bible does not, is not against itself. And bad Bible study pits the Bible against itself. All right, number four. Bad Bible study never opens the Bible. Bad Bible study never opens the Bible. Now, this one seems like an oxymoron, but sadly, it's not all that uncommon, is it? I mean, especially today, I suggested to you a podcast, but many people could listen to all kinds of podcasts. They can get on Facebook or any kind of social media or website and spend all day listening to what everyone else has to say and yet never once open their Bible. It's not that uncommon for people to try to practice Bible study that way. This happens when we start understanding the Bible based on what we think it says rather than what it actually says. Consider, for example, how much has been said about the root, about money being the root of all evil. What Paul, of course, actually wrote, as many of you here know, is that it is the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil or all kinds of evil. That's a pretty big difference, is it not? Now, while that example is maybe a little less inconsequential or less consequential one, there are plenty of opportunities to make the same mistake with more impactful teachings, too, when it comes to salvation or to other things. When we get into this habit, it's a short trip, it's a very short trip to get to things like, well, I don't really think that God would prohibit women from serving as elders or teaching or preaching or preaching, I guess I should say, excuse me, or God wouldn't tell some people that they aren't allowed to be married or Jesus wouldn't care about blank, fill in whatever pet issue it might be for you or, or for someone else. We would then get in the dangerous habit of drawing conclusions about what God said without consulting his word. You know, I think this is a, uh, seems like something that we should all know. I think it's something we all agree on that, yes, you have to open the Bible. But we need to be careful when we're discussing with others that we realize that that's what some people do. I think it's easy sometimes to look at someone and say, well, how in the world did you come to that conclusion? Where did you hear that? But a lot of people will turn on YouTube or turn on their television or whatever it might be and listen to anybody and anything and just take whatever they hear without ever actually once opening their Bible. Bad Bible study never opens the Bible. And yes, I think this is a lot more common than we think. All right, number five. Bad Bible study starts with a conclusion, starts with a conclusion 
and finds a way to support it. Starts with a conclusion and finds a way to support it. Brother Wilkie in his article gives an example of Robin Hood. Robin Hood didn't get or didn't become good at archery by shooting arrows and then drawing the bullseye around the arrows, right? At least I would assume not. Might sound like an easy way to get good at things, but we know we really can't do that when it comes to actual action, whatever it might be. Neither will we become good Bible students by coming to the text with a conclusion and then drawing a bullseye around around it by finding a way to make the scripture say what we want. In our Wednesday night class, we've really challenged ourselves to try to do this. We've been studying why we teach certain things. In a large way, the answer is, well, that's because that's what the Bible says. But do you know that many people who follow false teaching would simply say the same thing? Well, I know it's what the Bible says. Well, how do you know that? Well, because that's what I've always heard. Or that's what my grandmother told me. Or that's what I heard the guy say on TV. Again, whatever it might be. Instead, we have to be careful that we don't just start with a conclusion and then find a way to support that. One of the best ways to guard against this problem, this error, to start with a conclusion, is to go back to two things we've already talked about. Number one, keep everything in its context. And number two, don't pit the Bible against itself. Finding what the Bible says rather then what I wanted to say requires me to dig deep into the context of the verses in question. That way I can understand what the original writer, and more importantly, what the Holy Spirit intended before taking those verses and applying them to my life. I try to challenge you from time to time. If you've got a question about something, go to our library. I will gladly answer questions. I would gladly sit down and discuss with you. Many of our elders would too, or all of our elders would. But also challenge yourself to dig deeper and really understand what the context is, what the Bible is trying to say. If I come looking for a conclusion, on the other hand, I can simply pull out a concordance and look up any verses that talk about my topic and string them together to say what I want them to. You know, I always, when I think about concordances, it kind of brings a smile to my mind because as a kid, as a young person, I had a Bible class teacher that taught us how to use the concordance, how to look up words, and any time I had to do a lesson, which was not that often, but as a young person, I'd go to the concordance, and if I was going to talk about prayer, I'd find every verse on prayer and write them all down. I had my sermon ready to go, right? I had my lesson. Yeah, kind of, but at the same time, I could put all those together, and it could be all kinds of different things about prayer, especially when it comes to worship. A person could go to the Old Testament, find the words for worship, New Testament, find the words for worship, and it'd be talking about different things. Most of us, or all of us here, understand the Old Testament worship was different than our worship today, but not everybody. Not everybody does. Bad Bible study starts with a conclusion and finds a way to support it. Bad Bible study is all around us. The consequences of mishandling God's word are frightful because what we have then is people and even politicians sometimes and people on social media who stand up and say, well, you know what the Bible says, right? You know, one of my favorites, and I'm I'm being facetious, it's not really funny at all, but one of my favorites recently have been these people who, when it comes to, like, the topic of abortion, will go back and say, well, did you know that the the Bible says in in Exodus or Deuteronomy that, you know, that we're supposed to 
kill somebody for this or that God said to do that. Just totally pulling out the old law out of its context, not even realizing what it's talking about. But they'll say, oh, well, God's word says we're also supposed to stone people, right? And they, they don't even know what they're talking about. Bad Bible study is all around us, and it causes lots of problems. So we must take great care to get it right. It's imperative that our hearts be in the right place when we come to Bible study. And it's equally imperative that our heads be in the right place for grasping God's word on his terms. If you recall, there was a, a time a couple of months ago, uh, I guess maybe back in May, when I was sick, one, one, got sick one Saturday night, Charles and, and Brian had filled in for me. I planned for this lesson to be a part of that Sunday because the lesson for that morning was Satan's most effective tool. Some of you may recall that, some of you may not. Uh, but the lesson was about, for Satan's most effective tool, was the idea that he doesn't need people to be atheists. He just needs Christians to be lukewarm. He just needs Christians to be not committed. He needs Christians who don't even study the Bible. And I wanted to connect this lesson to it because I think that's a great point to finish this lesson up, is to say Satan doesn't need atheists. He just needs false teachers. And when we engage in bad Bible study, we are falling right into his trap. The right heart, the right mind. The right heart will make us determined to not insert our wishes, our own wishes, and the right mind is the tool that can keep that from happening. Don't be one of those people. Don't just pull it out every once in a while. Don't pick out verses that you think might help somebody when they're out of context. Take these five things that are in a negative sense and look at the opposite side of that and apply them. And as always, if you have any questions, See me, see someone. We can talk about good study habits, good study tools that we can be knowledgeable in the Word of God. As we conclude the lesson this afternoon, it may be that you're here and you're not a child of God. We had a great, of course, moment this morning with our new brother Jacob, and we're thankful for his example. Maybe you're here and you would like to become a Christian as well. We'd study with you as soon as possible. Maybe you're here and you are a child of God. Maybe it's bad Bible study that's been in the way. Maybe it's some other sin that you'd like to make known or to share with us, allowing your brothers and sisters to pray with you and for you. We're thankful for this opportunity, and we'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.